Okay, then let's uh, let's make a start. So we come now to the the last saying of the Lord Jesus, Father, into Thy hands I commend my spirit. Now, as we said, these are the final words of the Lord Jesus, and we've shown that the number of Greek words He was using was decreasing all the way all the way down, until you come to this last sentence that he says, eight words and we've said that each word would have been uh, very difficult for him to utter therefore this was made with a supreme effort it seems that he died the moment after he said that last word spirit, to thy hands I commend my spirit and death so father to thy hands when he's in his agony in the garden the Lord Jesus says four times Father he addresses his Father like that and if as it were we look at the record through as it were half closed eyes we see this prostrate figure there in the garden Father 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 though my Father this cup may not pass away from me though my Father if it be possible my father, my father so it would appear that in his final agony the fathership of God is something which meant a lot to the Lord Jesus he makes all this effort to use this word as I say every word now in his final burst of speaking every word was was valuable every word was difficult as I say the idea of God being his father was something that was very big in his mind no doubt this was the the issue which had uh, brought him so much ridicule that people just would not accept that God was really his father and yet it was this which was the, the basis of its comfort so into thy hands I commend my spirit now what do we mean by the spirit of man or the spirit of Christ what did he mean when he said into thy hands I commend my spirit I would suggest that not always does the word spirit just mean power we tend to take the word spirit as if it means some sort of naked power like electricity and of course sometimes the spirit of God does refer to that the power of God very often but also the word spirit often refers really to the mind the fundamental person, the soul if you like of a person and there's a slight confusion sometimes between the word soul and spirit Um, sometimes because in the sense that the spirit sometimes means the mind or the, the being, the personality of the person and sometimes the word soul is used like that it's just that something we need to be be aware of although generally of course soul means body or creature and spirit does mean power but not always is this distinction uh, valid and sometimes the word spirit more refers to the, the personality or the, the mind or the being uh, the characteristics of a person and to thy hands I commend my spirit now this Greek word translated, translated commend really means to place beside to lay down beside to lay down is the real idea the Lord Jesus had a sense that his character, his spirit, would not be forgotten by the Father. As it were, it would take its place by the Father, as he would later, physically. Now, I'm not trying to suggest that we live on in any sort of disembodied sort of sense, of course. 
Into thy hands I commend my spirit. And I think the hands of God is quite clearly an idiom for his care, his preservation. Often used about the angels. So then Christ was willing, or he wanted, to give his spirit, his mind, his character, into the care of God. Now what does this what does this mean? I have to be rather careful in explaining what I'm going to mean in case you think I believe in immortal souls or going to heaven when we die or something which I assure you that I don't but I do wonder if we've just gone a little bit too far in reacting against this idea of the immortality of the soul and going to heaven etc when we die I mean I know we don't do that we're told in Luke 20, 36 those well known words God is not a God of the dead but of the living because all, that is all his people, all live unto him. That's why he can call himself the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He speaks of Abraham as if he's still alive. He speaks of those things which be not as though they are. Because to him all people are alive. All his people are now alive. doesn't mean they are physically. Now because the dead are unconscious, and we know that, and because our memories fade and distort our memories of those who die we tend to think perhaps subconsciously that perhaps that's how God sees dead people as well or dead believers that God as it were has put them on hold that God uh, is not thinking about them he'll think about them when the resurrection comes but all live unto God all his people that is all live unto him so God is aware of his saints just as much when they're dead as when they're alive doesn't mean they personally exist I keep saying that of course they're dead and unconscious but in the mind of God they're still alive all live unto him Revelation 6 verse 9 he opened the fifth seal and I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held and they cried with a loud voice saying how long O Lord holy and true dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth and white robes were given unto every one of them and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled so souls under the altar who had already died start saying to the Lord Jesus how long are you going to wait before you avenge our blood and those souls are dressed then in response to that in white robes and they're told to wait a little bit longer now of course somebody who believed in conscious survival of death would say well there you are and of course I keep saying we don't consciously survive death we know that we should do and yet to God all live unto him the souls, the minds if you like the personalities of these people who had died were there in God's mind so powerfully that it was as if they were saying to him come on how long is it going to be before you avenge those who killed us so as I say all live unto him let's look at Hebrews 12 I'm not turning you to these passages because I think you all know them Hebrews 12 verse 23 22. Ye come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, 
which is we are associated with the spirits of just men made perfect. What does this mean? That we are associated with the spirits of just men made perfect who are now in heaven in the heavenly Jerusalem. It seems to me that what's happened is that men and women have lived their lives as believers, developed their personality, their spirit, the spirit of Christ within them. When they've died, that mind, that personality of theirs, is, if you like, with God in heaven. He doesn't forget about them. They're living in his, eye, in his mind, in his eyes, in heaven, with him. And he's saying in Hebrews 12, it seems to me, that down here on earth, as we strive for the mind of Christ, as we try to be spiritually minded, we are associated with the spirits of just men who have been made perfect. But as we were saying in the last talk, have reached this point of spiritual maturity, and have died. And their characters that they developed, their spirit that they developed, is stored with God in heaven. In that sense, all live unto him. Now this is only what happens from God's viewpoint. In actual fact, these people are dead and unconscious, and I keep saying that. So, when the Lord Jesus died, when he was, he says that he said, it is finished. He was perfected by what he suffered. And then he commended his spirit to God to be laid down. He laid down his spirit with God. When he had finished, when he was completed, when he was perfected. Just like these people in Hebrews 12. There's the spirits of just men made perfect. Of righteous men who have been perfected. Men who had reached this point of completion in their characters. They died. Okay, they went back to dust, unconscious. Yep, we know that. But their spirit, their mind, their personality went to be with God. It was there with God in his memory. So much so that all live unto him. In his, from his perspective, for those in Christ, there's no such thing as death. No such thing as death. He has destroyed death and brought light and immortality to light, the Lord Jesus has, through the gospel. Now, I hope you won't misunderstand me. I'm sure you I'm sure you won't. So there was the Lord Jesus. His character was perfected. And then he realized that. He realized that he'd reached that point, and he gave his spirit, his mind, his personality, his breath, everything to God. He laid it down beside him. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. Well, the hands of God are particularly, not just talking about his care, but particularly about the angels. You remember, it says when he was tempted in the wilderness, that he was tempted to jump off the, uh, off the temple because the angels would look after him, because it had been promised that God would take him up in his hands if he stumbled. He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up. So I wonder if, on the cross, Jesus was intensely aware, not only of the fathership of God, but of the presence of the angels, just as we should be in our carrying of our crosses. This sense that we are not alone, but of the active presence of of the angels. It's as if somehow those guardian angels take that personality or transfer it somehow to God's memory in heaven. So then, Jesus said, Into thy hands I commend my spirit, and then he, he died. Now there's a difference, physically, in the death of Christ and the death of the majority of human beings. 
What is that most human beings die either because they're killed or because disease take hold, takes hold of them and eventually forces them to a point where they breathe their last. Human beings die against their will, normally. Normally. Not always, but normally. And yet, with the death of Jesus, there was a conscious giving up of his last breath. He says, into thy hands I commend my spirit, and then, that's it, he dies. It's as if he, he sensed he was dying. He knew that as soon as he finished that sentence, and the breath was, as it were, out of his lungs, that would be it. He knew that. He had this sense. Now, maybe I'm not explaining this very well, but if you see what I mean, he died as an act of the will. He wasn't passively waiting for death. And he wasn't, I don't think, saying, well, Father, this is it. Because as soon as he said that, he died. His spirit, as I say, refers to his mind, but also, as we've said, of course, to our our breath. Uh, Both the breath and the mind. He was giving his personality, his mind to God, and he was breathing physically his last. So he died as an act of the will. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. Death. So he actually gave his life. He gave his life. It wasn't taken from him. He gave his life. And as I say, the manner physically in which he died was a proof of that. Into your hands I commend my spirit. He gave it as an act of the will. And as I say, human beings don't usually die in that way. Now, this idea of Christ laying down his life, he laid it down, this is my point. Christ died for our sins, suggests, as I say, he had an aim in view, and he went out and he did it. Christ gave his flesh, this is my flesh, which, is, which I am giving for the life of the world. He gave it. Now, the breaking of bread, which is an act of the will, a conscious act as we break that bread, recalls how Christ gave his body for us. He gave it. Remember, he takes the bread and he says, I'm giving this to you because it symbolizes how I'm giving you my life. Giving you my body and my blood. I'm giving it to you. He became obedient, Philippians 2.8. He became obedient to death, even to the death of the cross. His, his death then was an act of obedience. Most of those thieves, for example, dying there, their death wasn't an act of obedience. It was an act of physical result of hanging on a cross. I think it's so significant that Christ died abnormally quickly for a crucified man. It was almost as if the crucifixion didn't kill him. It was in that he gave his life. Christ, it says, poured out his soul unto death. Now again, that is a conscious act. He poured out his soul unto death. There's wonderful words in John 15. Greater love hath no man than this that a man lay down his life for his friends. This is all brought together in John 10, where it's really quite clear, where he says the same thing almost three or four times. As I say, every word of scripture is meaningful, not like our words that just ramble on. I lay down my life for the sheep. Therefore, this is why God loved him, why God was pleased with him, because I lay down my life. This is the point. No man taketh it from me. No man taketh it from me. But I lay it down of myself, this commandment that I received. Now he laid down his life. He became obedient unto a commandment and he died. 
Now, in that sense, in that sense, if you know what I mean, Jesus did not die purely because he was crucified. He didn't die because he was murdered by the Romans. He didn't die just because the Jews betrayed him. Or the Jews wanted him out of the way. I know all these things are true physically, on a sort of physical level. But the emphasis of Scripture, and certainly the emphasis of the Lord Jesus, is that no man took his life from him. He laid it down. He laid it down. Now, we're told in Isaiah 53 that he, he poured out his soul unto death. He poured out his soul, his innermost being, unto death. He poured out his innermost being until he died. And I think that's referring to how he gave his spirit as an act of his own will, and then he died. Now this, if you can enter into what I'm saying, that this indicates the willpower of the Lord Jesus Christ. This indicates, in his final struggle, how strong his will was. But through using his will in this way, he could actually determine the point of his own death which he certainly did, whatever way you want to read all these passages, he did determine the exact second of his death. Because he says, into thy hands I commend my spirit, and then he died. So he, he had the willpower to actually die at a certain moment in time, rather than ten seconds later, or twenty seconds later. Now that indicates something about the willpower of the Lord Jesus. Now I'm not trying to suggest that by our own steel will we will please God or obtain salvation or overcome the flesh because that isn't the only way of achieving uh, the man Christ Jesus within us by just trying to be steel willed in that sense but it seems to me that willpower willpower is what to a large extent our life is all about when it comes to actually serving God and giving ourselves to God and as I say, in the manner of Christ's death, you see willpower in the extreme. That he actually could control the second of his own death. That he poured out his soul unto or until he died. And I think that this is again a sort of an agony in the soul of all of us, it should be. That we just are so weak-willed. Although we may cover our weak will and our vacillation by making dogmatic statements or bold, encouraging words or whatever, basically we are all weak-willed. This is our problem. This is our nature, which we have to struggle against and follow this glorious example of him who died for us and gave himself as an act of the will for us. You know, how many times have we, you know, we perceive, we, we notice, we, we see, we understand what we should be doing, but we just don't do it. And the world is full, not just the Ecclesias, but the world is full of people with resolves. People who weep for their sins, who weep for their mistakes, but they just can't bring themselves to do anything about it. They can't bring themselves to, as an act of the will, change themselves. And we all know that feeling, don't we? We see what we should be doing. It's not difficult. We understand it. We, we speak about it. We talk about it. We read about it. We understand, we, we realise in our own minds. And yet all too often that realisation just remains up there in our brain cells. And this is really what spiritual life is all about, to some degree, about willpower. Not being so weak-willed all the time as we are, 
we see what we should be doing, we see what men we ought to be, and yet we just somehow fail to do it. Of course, Paul said the same. How to perform that which is good, I find not. And yet, on a personal level, the fact we all like it shouldn't really be any comfort. But the sadness, the agony of the whole thing, that Christ loved us and died for us, and we know we should make a response to this, and yet we want to make the response. It's somehow our willpower just can't do it. The fact that you're the same and you're the same and we're all the same is cold comfort indeed. It should be, if we're serious about our relationship with Christ. The fact is he did it for us personally. And we want to make a response and we can't. And if you have the same problem or you have the same problem, so you do. But the fact still remains. Now, as I say, this is... We can't rub it off, pass it off too easily as just being, well, our human nature. This is something we should be inspired to try to overcome because this is really what our spiritual life is all about and as I say, in the manner of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ you see this how he, he had and developed this willpower so that he could pour out his soul unto death maybe willpower is the wrong, wrong way to put it but I, what I mean is to actually operationalize what we know up here that's what I'm trying to get at willpower is probably the, just the wrong word he poured out his soul unto death, his innermost being, until he died. You remember those words in Matthew 26 in the garden? He says, my soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Now this is before he even got to the cross. This was in Gethsemane. My soul is exceeding sorrowful. It's almost as if the mental tension of Gethsemane, he thought was about to kill him. My soul is sorrowful even unto death. Now this was, I suppose, a depression, an intense, almost momentary, relatively, depression, which is perhaps beyond our understanding, beyond my understanding anyway. Jesus being so dehydrated, as we've seen, was an indication, I think, of this extent of his soul being sorrowful unto death. Dehydration, that intense form, is normally associated with, with a depression. It's something that, that happens when you get very dehydrated. And yet, the Lord Jesus was, if you like, beyond depression. He was at a point where his soul was so sorrowful that he really felt this was unto death. So this was all going on within the mind, within the brain cells, if you like. The human being, the man of our nature. And why? For us. For us. Because of that, as we were saying earlier, he did it for us. If it was for himself, he did it so that it might be for us. But his mind, his soul was dominated with thinking of our redemption, our salvation, us in the kingdom of God, us sitting down in glory with him. And this is what, in a sense, we put in the food. Now this is why, as I say, the agony was in his mind so much that he, it nearly killed him. So into thy hands I commend my spirit. And this word commend is related to this word to lay down. I put this here. I lay down my life for the sheep. A man lays down his life for his friends. This Greek word tithamai. Then he says, I commend my spirit. I power tithamai. It's, it's related. So what he's saying is, I commend my spirit to the Father. This was the point at which he laid down his life for the sheep. He says, I lay down my life for the sheep. 
When did he do that? How did he do it? When he commended his spirit to the Father. How did he love us? That a man laid down his life for his friends. How did he lay down his life? When he commended his spirits. Let's say this related word. He yielded up the spirit. That's the comment. And again, that's a related word again, paradidomai, to place down beside. Commended his spirit. He yielded up the spirit. He yielded it. Gave it as an act of his will. A yielding. Christ, in that sense, offered himself. Paul in Hebrews is talking about the typology of all this. He talks about Jesus as both the sacrifice and the priest. So you've got this idea, this rather strange figure of the priest bringing the sacrifice and offering it. But in fact the priest is the sacrifice. Christ is both sacrifice and priest and altar. He was everything. He was doing it to himself. So then, Christ laid down his life for us. And that word that's translated there, tithomai, is to lay down my life for the sheep, lay down my life for my friends. It's the same word that's used about them laying the palsied man down at the feet of Jesus, to lay him down, or the laying down of a foundation stone. It's also translated to bow down. So then, this is the idea, to lay oneself down, to consciously do it. Now, this final moment of Christ, when he yielded up his spirit, as I say, this is the moment when he laid down his life. I'd like us to look, we're coming to the end of our study, just like us to look at these last few passages. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, tracing through this idea of the word um, Tithomai and Paratithomai, this laying down of his life, this commending of his spirit, you find that it crops up a number of times in the New Testament. Galatians 2 verse 20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. It's just easy to read those words, but the implication of that is tremendous, to be crucified with Christ. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now it's this gave himself, it's the translation of that same word. Tithomai, I lay down my life. I commend my spirit. He gave himself for me. So what's Paul alluding to? He says Christ gave himself for me. He's alluding specifically to that moment when Christ commended his spirit. When in this huge act of the will, in Christ straining it with all his mental energy, actually gives his life due to the effort that he made in his mind. He was able to give his physical life at that moment. And Paul says he gave himself. In that moment of giving up his last breath, he gave himself for me. He loved me and gave himself for me. And he's talking here about how this had motivated him in his life. Ephesians chapter 5. This was obviously an idea that had grown in Paul's mind. Ephesians 5, verse 2. Walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself. This is the same word, commend, or to lay down. As Christ commended his spirit, as Christ gave himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God. Walk in love. 
as Christ also hath loved us. No man hath greater love than this, than that a man lay down his life for his friends. That he give his life, that he commends himself, that as I say, Christ in his act of the will gave his life. And he's saying, if this is what Christ did for you, he's saying, think of the intensity of that moment, the final mortal moment of the life of the Son of God. He's saying, think of it, that he gave himself for us, that he commended his spirit to God, that he, uh, this act of the will, that he, he, he committed himself, he could breathe his last breath. He had control over the moment of his death. He says, that's what Christ did. So walk in love, as Christ loved you, and as Christ gave himself for you. Now this should be worrying, brethren and sisters. It should be, really. Because we must walk in love. Because this is what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us. I mean, he is in heaven now, hearing genuinely our feeble effort to to, to get into these things. And he sees how far we fall short of any real appreciation. But at least we're trying. And he knows that he did this for us. And there must be a response. And we've seen that in other verses we've looked at. Goes on verse 3, fornication, uncleanness, etc., etc. It shouldn't even be named among saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting. Rather, giving of thanks. In the light of this, if you can enter into that final mortal moment of the Son of God, that he did this for us, that he gave himself, he gave up his own spirit like that for us. Fornication, all this sort of stuff, you shouldn't even want to talk about it but rather giving of thanks. We're sadly a long, long way away from that. Then we go down. He uses this, verse, this word again. And it's not that common a word. It's nearly always used about the giving up of Christ's life, apart from the laying down of the foundation stone or the laying down of the palsied man. Uh, Ephesians 5, verse 25. And the standard of this verse is, again, you know this verse, but it's, the standard is high indeed. Love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Gave himself. This is the same word, tithomai, this giving up, this yielding up of the Spirit. In that moment when he gave up the Spirit, that's when Christ gave himself for the church. And he's saying, husbands, love your wives even as Christ did in that last intense moment. No wonder he goes on to say in this context that basically a wife should respect her husband because if he's at least trying not that he's ever going to get there but that if he's at least trying if he sets his sight on that ideal and says well I'm not going to get there but I'll try as Christ gave himself in that moment I'll try for you says a woman should a wife should respect her husband for sure he's trying to do that there should be a respect there now this is a high, high standard isn't it very, very high standard it always makes you wonder God knows how weak we are and yet he, he puts these standards in front of us like be ye therefore perfect even as your father in heaven is perfect you think well, you know, this is not possible and yet the very height the very height of our calling in itself in itself should lift us up the very fact, it shouldn't, I know, some find it depressing, but it never strikes me that way, that we call to actually do the impossible. It's an inspiring thought. 
in the humdrum business of daily life. That we're called to be as perfect as God, that a husband is called to love his wife, not just as Christ loved the church, but as Christ loved the church and gave himself in that last final moment, giving up his birth. That's the, the standard that's set before us. And the height of it, the very height of it, should in itself lift us up, as it were, on these eagle wings of spirit above the things of this life. John 10, again Jesus says, The Father loveth the Son because he lays down his life. John 10 verse 17. Because God could foresee the intensity of this moment. The Father loved the Son. Christ says in that same verse, I lay down my life for the sheep. Lay down is the same word that's, uh, that's used about Christ commending his spirit, giving up his spirit on the cross. It's as if his whole life was characterized by this spirit of giving up, laying down with the same intensity that he had on the cross. Now, let's have a look at the first of Peter, chapter 2. And Peter will actually be our last reference. First of Peter, chapter 2. First of Peter, chapter 2, verse 21. So well-known words I know, but the implication of these things is startling. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. His suffering there was not just something far away, but it is an example that you should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. But committed himself, and that's the same word, to yield up, sorry, to commend the spirit, to lay down your life. In that final moment, when he, as an act of the will, gave his life, it says, he committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. And so we are asked, we are asked to follow his example in this. We are asked to share his sufferings, to take this example of Jesus as an example, and to follow in his steps. Chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Have the mind of Christ as he suffered. It's high, isn't it? Do you sense the height of this, what we're reading here? And finally, verse 13. 1 Peter 4 verse 13 Rejoice and as much as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings that when his glory shall be revealed you may be glad also with exceeding joy He says let none of you suffer verse 15 as a murderer or as a thief and I wonder if he's alluding there to the thief on the cross or as an evil doer 16 Yet if any man suffer as a Christian i.e. If any man suffer with Christ, that's how I think that should be translated. If any man suffer as one who is with Christ, because in the context he's talking about sharing the sufferings of Christ, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Then verse 19. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God 
commit, and this is that same word, commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Christ committed his spirit, his soul, he poured out his soul, commended his spirit, he committed his spirit to God, to a faithful creator, into his hands. He suffered according to the will of God. Well, we know that Christ suffered according to the will of God by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge, the determinate will, same word, of God. Christ suffered according to the will of God. He committed his soul. He commended his spirit. He poured out his spirit to a faithful creator. And Peter is saying, follow in his steps. Now, I trust it's not some sort of Uriah Heap sort of fawning humility, but this is almost beyond me to say, because I feel a hypocrite saying this, because we're, we're talking about such a high level, thinking of the mind of the Son of God on the cross. And we are being told here, I couldn't tell you, but the, the Word is telling us that He is our example, and that we must follow in His steps. Now, if we were to stop there, we would go away with what just seems to be a pointlessly high challenge. But I think we have to recognise that the Bible does, or the New Testament does ask us, does demand of us a standard of righteousness that is beyond us. And as I say, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. It's almost as if the Lord Jesus picked those words to, to almost highlight the impossibility of it. Even as your Father in heaven is. Your Father in heaven. Think of him and his heavenly glory. Even as your Father in heaven is perfect. As I say, I think the reason why this has been done is not to just tease us with a, a standard of righteousness that cannot be attained, but to make us realise the standard which ideally we would wish to give. That ideally we would wish to give. But then the whole thing has got two sides to it. There's this seeing the love of Christ and seeing the response that we should make, this complete level of righteousness, this knowing the mind of Christ, this giving of ourselves to each other and to our Father as Christ gave himself for us. There's that on one hand. And the sense that, the, the fear that we just can't rise up to that standard. Yet on the other side of the coin is that because Christ did that, it was all finished. Because we are in him, as we are, because we are in him, his righteousness really is imputed to us. And God really will see us as if transgression is finished, as if sin is finished now that Christ died on the cross. But it has been overcome. It is finished. It's all been ended. Father, forgive forgive us of all the sin and all the weakness and all the failure to attain his righteousness, which we have committed and will commit. And that, we believe, is sure. But that has been forgiven. And therefore, as the Apostle says, we should have all joy and all peace through believing. Before we have the question session, I think it may be appropriate to um, conclude with a hymn and prayer, and then perhaps in the discussion after that, our sisters would then be free to uh, contribute. I'd like us to conclude with hymn number 73 trying to mix both the sufferings and the, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. M73, I'd like to read the last verse. He who for men, this is us, he who for men did weep, 
suffer and bleed and die. First fruits of them that sleep. Christ has gone up on high. His victory hath destroyed the shafts that once could slay. Sing praise. The tomb is void where the Redeemer lay. Our Father in heaven, in the name of thy dear Son, we come before thee. Willing, Father, that we were more conscious of our utter inadequacy to have thought about the things that we have done. And we do pray, Father, for our eyes to be the more fully opened, to see the glory of thy dear Son, to see the height of his exaltation that he now enjoys, to see the greatness of thy grace toward us. And we do pray, Father, that we might develop a truer humility, a truer knowledge of thy grace, and a firmer faith in the coming of thy Son, and of the certainty of the hope of thy kingdom. We pray, Father, that as the sufferings of Christ gently and more slowly abound in us, so the comfort and the consolation might abound also, and that we might grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus. Father, we do thank thee that we have been able to have this time together. We pray for safekeeping on each of us as we travel above all things that we might be brought together again into thy kingdom with him who loved us and gave himself for us. In his name, Father, we offer this prayer. Amen.